0: Our text this morning is Romans chapter 7, verses 21 through 25. And let's read again, starting at verse 13, for the context. This is the word of the Lord let all who have ears to hear hear. Has then what is good become death to me? Certainly not. But sin, that it might appear sin, was producing death in me through what is good so that sin through the commandment might become exceedingly sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For what I am doing I do not understand, for what I will to do that I do not practice, but what I hate that I do. If then I do what I will not to do, I agree with the law that it is good. But now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. For I know that in me, that is, in my flesh, nothing good dwells, for to will is present with me. But how to perform what is good I do not find. For the good that I will to do, I do not do, but the evil that I will not to do, that I practice. Now if I do what I will not to do, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. I find then a law, that evil is present with me, the one who wills to do good. For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man, but I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, and bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I thank God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then with the mind, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the law of sin. Let's pray. Father, we commit this time to you and we humble ourselves before the King of Kings and the Lord of Lords, whose word goes out to all the earth and accomplishes all his good pleasure. Father, thank you. Thank you for your word and your spirit to illumine your word, to give us light, and to transform us from within as we hear the powerful word of God. Thank you, Lord. We pray that you would open our understanding this morning, that you would help us to see your glory more. Unveil to us your beauty, Lord. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Well, we are methodically working through Romans chapter 7, and this is a challenging portion of Scripture, Uh, no doubt. Many have wrestled with particularly Paul's teaching in this stretch of the text from verses 13 to 25 for centuries. And there are different opinions on what Paul means by his writing here. What we know is Paul has started this section, or this chapter really, major chapter heading, talking about freedom from the law. Christians have a new relationship to the law, and it is this, we are free In what sense? We are no longer under the condemnation of the law because Christ has paid our penalty in full at the cross. Because of that, we have both died with him and we have been raised with him spiritually now to newness of life, to hear the voice of our great shepherd and to know the truth which sets us free Paul has also gone on to talk about the limit, or excuse me, the um, function of the law, which is good, and he describes that in verses seven through twelve. The law has a very good function, and it is this: that it exposes our sin for what it really is. It discloses to our sensibilities that we are not just sinners but completely sinful that we have a nature from Adam that has been thoroughly corrupted in every sense. And because of that, we love our sin. We prefer the lie to the truth in our natural state. The law shows us this. It comes in power, and Paul described his own personal experience in these verses, knowing that he was once alive in his own mind, thinking he was a a good Jew and a good Pharisee, keeping the law of God. But then at one point the commandment came to him in power and he realized that he was actually spiritually dead and that all his righteousness so-called was just filthy rags that he would gladly trade for the knowledge of of the Son of God, the Lord Jesus Christ. And then moving on from the goodness of the law's ability to show us our sin not to be the agency of our salvation itself, but the agency or the method that God uses to show us our need of salvation, he then begins to discuss the limitations of the law, or the main limitation of the law, which is that it cannot save us. There's no power in the law to save, only to condemn, only to show us our sin and to lead us to the Savior but not to save us. So Paul in this section, verses 13 to 25, is really opening up for us a picture of what it is to see the sinfulness, the exceeding sinfulness of sin that he mentions in verse 13. And he begins by saying, we know that the law is spiritual, it's good, it's holy, it's just, it's a direct reflection of the character of God Himself. The problem is not with The law, when there is sin, it's always in the heart of the individual. It's in the flesh. The law is not the source of sin. The law and God are always vindicated, shown to be good and just and holy. Paul says, no, I'm the problem. I'm the carnal one. That is, the one who is of flesh. The one who is earthbound. Mortal, tainted with sin, sold under sin, as a one-time act forever. And we're beginning to understand something of what that means. Because that verse, verse 14, and that phrase, sold under sin, has been a source of consternation for many seeking to rightly exegete this passage. Is Paul talking about somebody who is unredeemed, unregenerate? Because he's sold under sin? Is he talking about somebody who is redeemed but spiritually weak and in need of another experience of grace? Maybe the filling of the Holy Spirit because he doesn't have that quite yet. Or is he talking about the experience of a true regenerate believer? In fact, his own personal testimony as the Apostle Paul. And that is, I think, exactly what is in view here. Paul is describing himself, not his true self, his real self, his inner man as we're going to see today, but his flesh as being totally sold under sin, corrupted and in that state forever. And so if Paul is no longer in the flesh, but the flesh is in him. That's the big idea in this section. If you want to synthesize it and keep it clear in your mind, it's this, Paul is no longer in the flesh. He said in chapter 7, verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, that was the past, we are no longer in the flesh. If you are in Christ, if you have the Spirit of God in you, you are by definition no longer in the flesh. You're no longer controlled by the flesh. Yes, the flesh is in you, and it's a force, a strong force, no doubt, to be reckoned with. But the controlling factor is now the Holy Spirit of God. And we're going to see that more and more as we get to chapter 8, which we're leading up to. But before we get there, we have some important ground to cover in chapter 7. So last time we looked at verses uh, 15 through 20. And we, we kind of divided those into three sections or three headings. The first was these new desires Paul in verse 15 describes a a new desire that he has now in the present tense. Not the desire that he had previously from verse 8 of chapter 7, looking back when he said that sin, leveraging, taking opportunity by the commandment, the law of God, produced, it worked out in me, all manner of evil desire. His desire in the flesh was only evil continually. But now he has a good desire. Now, he says, what I'm doing I don't understand is the way it's interpreted in the New King James, but really it's the word approve of. I don't approve of. I don't give my consent to what I am doing. For what I will to do I don't practice, but what I hate that I do. So here we have new desires, new affections in the new man. In fact, this is evidence in itself that this man is a converted man. We don't have desires for holiness, desires for keeping the law of God in the flesh. All we have desire for is the lust of the flesh. And so, Paul has new desires. In verse 16, he says, if I do what I don't want to do, I agree with the law that it is good. So, here we have Paul's confession of truth Paul is siding with the good law of God in his mind and against himself, that is his flesh. He's taking a position of vindicating God, and the true believer always does that. He always vindicates God, maybe not at every moment in time because we sin, but ultimately this is the position that the Lord brings his people to. They vindicate God and his law, his holy law, his word, and they condemn themselves willingly. Paul says, I am guilty. That's why we have a great Savior. We know something of the sweetness of Christ because we know something of the heinousness of our own sinfulness, right? And then in verses 17 to 20, Paul acknowledges that he understands something of two identities within himself, two identities. He he has a new eye and he has the old eye, which is the same thing as saying he has the spirit a new spirit in himself and the Holy Spirit of God, which is this new eye, He's going to call that the inner man, as we are going to look at today. But he also has the flesh, which is what's carnal, what's sold under sin. And he's bound to it. He can't loose himself from it, ultimately. It's a point of frustration. It's a lament. It really should not surprise anyone in thinking about... Is Paul talking about a regenerate person in this section, which I have no doubt that he is? It shouldn't surprise us, though, that this is a converted, regenerate, born-again person that has this kind of conflict, this war within. I mean, this this is interesting because when we think about where we came from in Romans 5, at the beginning of Romans 5, "...therefore having been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ." Christ took away the wrath of God that was abiding on us by his cross work for us in our place to give us peace with God. That is a reconciliation with God. We've been brought near to him. The enmity, the hatred that we had toward him and his wrath that he had toward us has now been removed. It's been set aside. In fact, it's been punished fully in Christ. We have peace. We have standing with God but we have a war within now. We have peace with God, but we have war with self. War with the flesh. That's what the Lord has brought us to because He has caused us to be born again. So now we are no longer totally in the flesh anymore. Now we have both flesh and we have spirit that's alive, powered by the Holy Spirit of God. And we see it. And we hate what this flesh does. And we love righteousness and what the law of God has to say. We are at war with ourselves now. And so we began to look at this last week, this warfare and the evidence of the warfare. But again, this conflict that we see here in Romans 7, this is not a new conflict. This is a conflict, brothers and sisters, that is threaded throughout the course of Scripture. This is the conflict of Esau and Jacob in the womb. This is the conflict of Isaac and Ishmael in the same family. This is the conflict of Israel and Canaan in the same land. This is the conflict of the house of Saul and the house of David in the same kingdom. This is the conflict of the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman, who is ultimately the Lord Jesus Christ. But it's also between all the children of the devil and the children of God. And that flesh is sold under sin. It belongs to the first birth, the Adamic kingdom, the fallen kingdom, the kingdom that's controlled by the spirit of disobedience, the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. And so there is the conflict, it's everywhere in Scripture. Today, I want to look at three more traits or evidences of this war within, um, really in verses 21 through 23. The first is nearness of evil, the nearness of evil. That's something we're going to see in verse 21. Secondly, the delight of the new man, that's in verse 22. And thirdly, the strength of the enemy in verse 23. So, let's look at these in turn. First is the nearness of evil verse 21 of chapter 7 I find then a law that evil is present with me the one who wills to do good Paul is summing up here what he's really been describing in verses 14 through 20 he's he's made observations of what he sees within himself We see these new desires, we see a confession of truth, we see a knowledge that there are two identities within the same individual. In verse 18, he doesn't find how to, he says, perform what is good. The word that's used is that Greek word that means to perform to completion, to carry out to the full what is good. And so what we saw last time is Paul did not find in himself the ability to completely obey the law of God. That's what he wants in his mind, in his new heart. This is what he wants more than anything is complete obedience to God. Any disobedience to God is frustration. And he doesn't see how to do this in himself again because the flesh is it's in him. He's not in the flesh, but the flesh is in him. It's, it's a body of sin that's connected to him. He doesn't see how to completely obey. But here's what he does see. Here's what he does perceive. He's discovered a law. Now, this is not the law as in the law of God, but it's a word that just means a rule. It means a governing principle, something that would always hold true. And what is that law? It's this, that evil is present with me. Now, as you track through this section, you'll notice that Paul is talking about sin primarily. In verse 13, 14, 17, 20, he's talking about sin. In verses 19 and 21, though, he introduces this term evil. Evil. Well, what is evil? Evil is uh, really at a basic level. It comes from a word. The word itself means worthless or worthlessness. Um, A lot of times it's used interchangeably with sin. But really the way to think about evil is it's that which is fundamentally wrong. It's that which is fundamentally opposed to what God has deemed to be good, and therefore it's worthless. Everything that God has said has value and virtue and goodness. Evil is the opposite of, and therefore it has no value and no goodness and no worth. You could think of sin as is an action. It's transgression of the law, right? First John. It's breaking the law. Evil is the state that results from the breaking of the law. If sin were the acid that eats, evil would be the corruption that follows what the acid eats. So you can see how they're closely related. And he says that this evil, this state of corruption, this worthlessness is present with sin. Him. It's present with me. Now, notice, he doesn't say I'm evil, but he says evil is present with me. The ESV says it lies close at hand. The New American Standard says evil is present in me. In other words, it's right beside me, it's alongside me, it dwells with me. What he says in the Greek, I like the way it's phrased in the Greek. He says, I find then a law. I, the one willing to do good, that my evil, he uses the personal possessive pronoun, he claims it, my evil is present. It's at hand. It's right here beside me. And this is this principle that he's discovered. In other words, Paul is describing his new constitution as a Christian. The real Paul is the one who wills to do what is good. he has holy desires. He makes the good confession. But right next to him is this enemy, evil, who is itself a state of corruption and worthlessness and is tied to him. It's what he calls the body of sin in Romans 6, verse 6. And because this evil is a governing principle, it is always with him. He cannot get away from it. This is what's going to lead him in verse 24. To cry out to God, O wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. It will be with him until he dies, until the body is fully corrupted. He has discovered his greatest enemy, and it's not somebody outside of himself. It is inside him. It's as close as it can get to an individual. And this enemy is one who never sleeps. It's always watching Paul to thwart him, and anytime he wants to do what is good, it wants to destroy him, it wars against him, as we'll see in verse 23. This enemy, this evil, is in his flesh. It's sin, and that's what's sold under sin. It's why his flesh practices evil. Even though his mind hates it, it's an ever-present threat. You say, how does Paul know that evil is present with him and that it's not really him? It's not his true nature. How does he know that he's not evil? Well, he explains it in verse 22. And this is really the second point. It's the delight of the new man. First, the nearness of evil. Second, the delight of the new man. He says in verse 22, "...for I delight in the law of God according to the inward man." Here, Paul is defining the real I, the real Paul. He had said in verse 20, in the negative, who he is, he had hinted at it. He said, now, if I do what I will not to do, it's no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells in me. When I sin, it's not really me doing it because I hate my sin. I don't want to sin. I don't give approval or consent to it. But here he says it positively. He says, For I delight in the law of God according to the inward man. And he uses the Greek word that means with pleasure. Sin idome. Idome, like hedonism. It's the word for delight. He takes great pleasure in or rejoices together with what? God's law. God's law. It gives him pleasure. And when he's referring to God's law, he's talking about his whole law. When Paul wrote, there was no New Testament at that time. It was the Old Testament he was referring to. The law, the prophets, the Psalms, the threefold division of the entire law. He loved it. He delighted in it. And he says, I delighted in it according to the inward man. This is now the location. He's he's pinpointing for us where this delight happens. It's also translated the inner being or the inner man. So inward man or inner man Very simply, what is that? Well, it's not the outward man. It's inward. It's what's hidden from public view, not easily discernible to the natural eye. Listen to Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 3 to hear something of who this inner man is. I'm going to read several passages together with you. We want to get an understanding of what Paul's talking about when he talks about this new man or this inner man who delights in the law of God. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1, If then you were raised with Christ, seek those things which are above, where Christ is, sitting at the right hand of God. Set your mind on things above, not on things on the earth, for you died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. The new you is a spiritual you. The true you in Christ is a hidden person. In fact, hidden with Christ in God is what Paul is saying here to the Colossians. Where is that? Well, above in heaven. We are seated in Christ with heaven where Christ is now. This is a mystery, brothers and sisters. We are both spirit and flesh, and at the same time our spirit is with us and it is seated in heaven with Christ. We've been raised with him. Listen to it in Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, but God who is rich in mercy because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up together. That's past tense. This is something that's happened and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. This is the inner man. He's hidden because he's in Christ, in heaven, in God. This inward man is also described as the hidden person of the heart. Listen to 1 Peter chapter 3, verses 3 and 4. Do not let your adornment merely be outward, arranging the hair, wearing gold, or putting on fine apparel. Rather, let it be the hidden person of the heart with the incorruptible beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit which is very precious in the sight of God. Now, Peter is addressing wives uh, in that passage, clearly. And he says, you have a hidden person of the heart. Now, that is not only addressed to the women. This is what's true of all who are in Christ. He's describing The new man, the new person, the new heart that you've been given by the Lord. And it's described as gentle and quiet and very precious in the sight of God. It does not seek to adorn itself externally. It doesn't seek to draw attention to itself. In fact, the opposite. It seeks to draw attention to Christ and to make much of Him. That's the beauty of this inner man that both men and women in Christ share. In Romans 2 verse 29, Paul describes, in fact, he redefines for those who are ethnic Jews what a true Jew is. He says this, "...but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart, in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from men but from God. So here's another snapshot of the inner man or inward man. It's the hidden man of the heart. It's associated with heart, this new heart. And we know that in categories of the Bible, the heart refers to the mind, the emotions, and the will. All of that is this new heart or given to us in this new heart. It's a heart that's been cleansed, circumcised, by the Spirit of God, not by the work of men, trying to adhere to the external law of God. And it's a heart that seeks its praise not from men, but from God. This is the inner man that loves the law of God. This is the inner man that Paul has, and this is the inner man that you and I have in Christ. This new man is also called a new creation or a new creature. Second Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. It's a new kind of creature he's describing. Or you could say it this way, a creature of a new nature. A new nature. And what is that nature? Well, it is the seed of the incorruptible God who abides in us. That's this new divine nature that we have been made partakers of. It's the new creation, a new kind of man. In Colossians chapter 3 again, he calls this inward man a new man specifically. He says this in verses 9 and 10 of Colossians 3, Do not lie to one another, since you have put off the old man with his deeds, and have put on the new man, who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him this new man is renewed in knowledge knowledge we're going to expand that a little bit more ephesians chapter 4 verse 24 and this is to those who have been born again paul says and that you have put on the new man which was created according to God in true righteousness And holiness, true righteousness and holiness. And we talked about this last time briefly. This new man, this new you that has been born again, born from above, is seated above with Christ and yet is in you at the same time, cannot sin, is holy. In fact, is created in true righteousness and holiness, unable to sin. All the sin that we do emanates from the flesh. That's why Paul in Romans 7 says that he practices sin. Where? In his flesh. That's all the flesh can do. But this new man cannot sin, he is holy, he is pure, he is undefiled, because it's the seed of the undefiled God that is in him. So, uh, one more Ephesians chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to this new inner man and how he is strengthened. Ephesians 3.16, that He, God, would grant you, according to the riches of His glory, to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner man. So, the inner man is strengthened by the Holy Spirit of God. As we set our minds on Him, that's how we're renewed in knowledge. We set our minds on the things of the Spirit of God, on the Word of God, on the the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ and His glory. And we are renewed. We are built up in the faith, strengthened by the Holy Spirit who testifies to the Son of God in meekness, quietness, a beautiful adornment. So, what are we learning here? This inward man, this new man, is the hidden man of the heart. He is the new creation. He is the quiet spirit who draws attention to Christ. He is holy and incapable of sin. He is renewed in the knowledge of God by God, the Holy Spirit. That's the inward man that Paul says delights in the law of God. The real Paul and the real us does not delight in sin any longer, brothers and sisters. That's the learning. We don't delight in sin or evil. We used to. It's clear. Ephesians 4 again, Paul is saying to the Ephesians, do not walk like the unbelieving Gentiles any longer. This is verses 17 through 20 of Ephesians 4. In the futility of their mind, having their understanding darkened, being alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the blindness of their heart. Blind mind, blind emotion, blind will, who being past feeling have given themselves over to lewdness, immorality, to work all uncleanness with greediness. But you have not so learned Christ, if in fact you've been taught by him. That's not a portrait of the Christian as the pattern of life any longer. We don't delight in evil. Yes, evil may be attractive in a moment-by-moment basis, but you indulge yourself in whatever that might be, and you will be a miserable person because the Spirit of God in you will be grieved. You do not delight in evil anymore. God hates evil, and so His children hate evil. Now we delight in what is good. We delight in God Himself and in everything He says. This is the inner man that's hidden from public view. This is so important because Paul is saying this is not just a pretense of obedience that you have while secretly you're loving sin, secretly you're entertaining skeletons, so to speak, in your closet. No. No, not a pretense of obedience on the outside while secretly loving sin, but truly loving righteousness and hating sin even when you're in private. We have a really good illustration of this by our Lord himself when he describes the Pharisees, right? Matthew 23. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore, you will receive greater condemnation. Pretense. They wanted to look good in others' eyes. They were seeking the approval of men. That's why they prayed long prayers. Or in Matthew chapter 6, and no doubt describing the same group of Pharisees, verses 5 and 6, Jesus says, And when you pray, you will not be like the hypocrites, for they love to pray standing in the synagogues and on the corners of the streets, that they may be seen by men. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you pray, go into your room. And when you shut your door, pray to your Father who is in the secret place, And your father who sees in secret will reward you openly. There's the inward man who is seeking the approval not of men but of God. Who doesn't do what he does in pretense but in truth, in the heart. Where no one sees but God alone. I want to read just a little bit of Psalm 101. Because David illustrates this really well. In Psalm 101, um, short psalm, but just take a look at the first few verses here with me. David says, I will sing of mercy and justice. To you, O Lord, I will sing praises. I will behave wisely in a perfect way. That means blameless way. Oh, when will you come to me? I will walk within my house with a perfect or blameless heart. See, David is talking here about this very principle. He wants to walk within his house, the palace where he lived, with a perfect heart before God and not before anyone else. With the door shut, not in public view, David says, my heart is to serve you, God. It's to praise you. It's to sing of your mercy and justice. And to walk in a blameless way. He says in verse 3, I will set nothing wicked before my eyes. I hate the work of those who fall away. It shall not cling to me. A perverse heart shall depart from me. I will not know wickedness. This is a man who loves righteousness. This is a man after God's own heart. Who seeks to please God at all times. Can we say that about ourselves, brothers and sisters? Do we seek to please God when we're in the private moments of our day, no one watching except for the Lord Himself who sees the heart? Do we have that kind of fear of God before Him in those times, to honor Him, to refuse sin, to turn away from it, to turn our eyes away from whatever it might be, or our ears, right? Yeah, the wicked person may give a pretense of delighting in the law of God, but Truly in their hearts they hate God because the carnal mind, Romans 8:7) is enmity against God for it is not subject to the law of God nor indeed can be. The wicked have no interest in truly subjecting themselves, submitting to the law of God or loving the law of God. Only the righteous delight in God's law, especially when no one else is looking. Listen to the hearts of some of the saints who have expressed this delight in the law of God. Job, for example, in Job 23, verse 12, I have not departed from the commandments of his lips. I have treasured the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. There's delight and necessity. He sees that the Lord is his greatest need and his greatest delight. Or the psalmist in Psalm chapter 1, verse 2, Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor stands in the path of sinners, nor sits in the seat of the scornful. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law he meditates day and night. How do you know that you delight in the law of God? Well, the psalmist here says that he meditates in it day and night. He pours over he gives Himself to it. We do what we love, don't we? we? We give ourselves to the things that are most important to us. When you love the Word and you love the Lord, you give yourself to Him. And, and we are doing that, aren't we? More and more. That's the trajectory that we're on. And what a wonderful evidence that we have a new heart for the Lord that He's given us. We didn't have that heart before. We loved our wickedness before. Psalm 19 verses 9 and 10, the fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More to be desired are they than gold, yes, than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. There's a person who knows the sweetness of the Lord, to taste and see that he is good. Sweeter than honey. I don't know anything that's sweeter than honey except this word doesn't make us sick like honey does, if you eat too much of it. And our call to worship this morning, Psalm 119, verses 4 to 16, I have rejoiced in the way of your testimonies, as much as in all riches. I will meditate on your precepts and contemplate your ways. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. See, this is a person who knows something of the sweetness of the law of God, of his word And because he's tasted, he wants more. He has a hunger, an appetite for it, a craving for it. And so he resolves to do it more, to partake of it more. I will delight myself in your statutes. I will not forget your word. I love these examples. There is one example, though, that excels them all. Which of the sons of God delights most in the law of God in the Scriptures? Is it not the Son of God Himself? John chapter 4, listen to Jesus' own words in verse 34. Jesus said to them, My food is to do the will of Him who sent me, and to finish His work. His food, His sustenance, and not just dismal food, not just K-rations, not just something that's going to sustain Him, but the delightful food is his desire, his will to serve God, to finish his work, to do God's very will. That's the delightful food of his soul. And it is becoming the delight of our souls as well. Hmm. So we have the nearness of evil, which is really a lament. It's, you know... Stay tuned because I've got some encouragements for us at the end here. But for now, the nearness of evil, it's with us, it's in us, it's not going away. Two is the delight of the new man. We have these new delights and we exercise them even in private. Three is the strength of the enemy. Look at verse 23 of Romans 7, the strength of the enemy. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind, And bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. I want you to notice that Paul is now shifting his attention where? He's looking inwardly again, isn't he? In the prior verse, he was talking about the law of God. He's delighting in the law of God, according to the inward man. But now I see, I see another law in my members. He's looking at himself. And what does he see in himself? He says, Another law, another principle, or a principle of another kind from the law of God he was just describing. So, not a good principle, just, holy, like the law of God, but an evil principle. In fact, he calls it the principle of sin in this same verse. So, that's what he's talking about. And he says this principle of evil or of sin is present with him. It's alongside him. It's right beside him and in him. And here he says it's in his members, in his members. Now, this is a term that we've come up against a couple of times in our study. We saw it a few times in chapter 6. We saw it most recently in chapter 7, verse 5. Look at chapter 7, verse 5. For when we were in the flesh, the sinful passions which were aroused by the law were at work in our members. They were in our members, to bear fruit to death. So, it's the place where his sinful passions were energized to bear fruit to death. That was the pattern of his life when he was in the flesh. The members are the particular components of the mortal body, as he describes in Romans 6.19 and 6.13. The individual parts are the components, and that refers both to parts of the physical body, things like, eyes and mouth and ears and hands and feet, but also the non-physical parts of us, the thoughts, the affections, the will, again, the faculties is kind of a way to summarize that, or the heart. Those are the exit points, if you will, the members, where sin is actually expressed, where it comes out. And Paul wants us to understand something here because he's, he's already told us His sin is located in his flesh as a whole, but he says it's specifically in the members of the flesh, the physical and non-physical members. That's where sin gives expression. And and Paul actually repeats this word two times in this verse. He does the same thing in chapter 6, verses 13 and 19. So this is an important concept. It matters in terms of his outlook and what he's going to tell us. Paul is saying that he sees a principle of sin located in the many components of his body which are all warring against the law of his mind. What is that? Well, that's the principle of the new mind that Paul has. This principle that he's been expressing to us all along that loves righteousness and that hates sin. It's a mind that delights in the law of God and which disapproves of his actions This is the inward man that we were learning about in verse 22, the hidden man of the heart. And remember, the the heart includes the mind. So he's talking about the real Paul. He's identifying that he has a new mind, and it's the mind of the Spirit of God. This is nothing other than the mind of Christ that every true believer has. 1 Corinthians 2.16 all who are truly spiritual, who are Spirit-led, Spirit-born, have the mind of Christ, which is, which is a spiritual mind. And what's happening here? Paul is saying, when I look at the sin that's in all my members, it's warring against the law of my mind. He uses the present tense there, meaning it's constantly warring against my mind, my spiritual mind. Sin is not uh, something passive, it's not muted, it's it's not cordial and nice, it's fighting always, it's militant, it's always seeking to carry out to completion the process of generating more sin in the flesh and ultimately death. That's its goal and that's its purpose. This is Galatians 5.17 that we looked at last week again, isn't it? It's the flesh lusting against the Spirit or setting its desire against the Spirit, and the Spirit doing the same in the reverse, the Spirit setting its desire against the flesh. Now, you might be asking yourself, how do particular members, if we're talking about a foot or a hand or an ear, how, how do those things war against the mind? I mean, can a, can a foot war against the mind? Where is it that the battle is taking place, brothers and sisters? It's in the mind. It's in the mind that the battle takes place. Only a mind can war against another mind. Remember, we are the product of both our first birth from Adam and our new birth in Christ in the same individual. We have an old mind and old affections and old will that still resides in our flesh. And we have a new mind, the mind of Christ, and new affections and a new will to serve God and to obey Him completely. The two coexist. The good news is, again, Romans 6.6, that body of flesh and everything that's part of it, all the members have been deprived of their power because of the crucifixion with Christ, our crucifixion with Christ. This is the beginning of the good news that we're going to expand more and more. Yes, these two things coexist. But greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world and who is in your flesh. The Spirit dominates the flesh as we walk in him, as we give ourselves to him, as we set our minds on him. We are growing in this new inner man more and more. And this flesh is being diminished more and more. We'll never fully get rid of the flesh in this life. So there will be a war to the end. But praise God, He is giving us the victory in our sanctification, in our practice, where He is making us more holy as we are being renewed in the Spirit according to knowledge, the knowledge of Him who fashioned us according to the image of Him who made us. That's growing The flesh is weakening. There's still a battle, but the Lord is winning in his people. So the battle takes place in the mind. It's important we understand this because we have old ways of thinking, we have old patterns of thinking, old thoughts that we are told need to be put to death. That's Colossians 3 again. We are to put those things to death. You who are spiritually minded, who have the mind of Christ, set your mind on things above. Exercise your spiritual mind. That's what we're doing here this morning. That's what we do every time we open the Word together. We are exercising this new muscle that's been given us, a spiritual mind, so that that is what dominates and not the old mind and the old patterns of thought. Is it any wonder that the Scripture says in 2 Corinthians chapter 10 For though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not carnal, not flesh or fleshly, but mighty in God for pulling down strongholds. What's that? Casting down arguments and every high thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God, bringing every thought into captivity to the obedience of Christ and being ready to punish all disobedience when your obedience is fulfilled. That's 2 Corinthians 10, verses 3 through 6. Paul is saying, we are engaged in a warfare, but it is a spiritual warfare. And brothers and sisters, it takes place in the mind, because what we are dealing with is taking captive thoughts that exalt themselves against the knowledge of Christ ungodly thoughts, ungodly patterns of thinking that we have been trained in for years ever since we were born. We're now evaluating all those things to see, is this coming into line with the obedience to Christ and his word or not? And if it's not, I'm tearing it down, not physically, but with spiritual weaponry, with the word of God, which is a mighty sword, right? We're tearing down those strongholds, those ramparts, those walls that have been built up around us. In fact, it's the Lord himself who's tearing those down in us. Tearing down all those evil thoughts and giving us new thoughts, his mind, exercising that muscle. This warfare takes place in the mind always. But here's what's interesting about this Romans 7 passage, I think. Each of the members that he's talking about, even feet and hands and ears and eyes, all those things. They connect to the mind, don't they? I mean, think about this. Do your feet just go places randomly without you thinking about it? Uh, Do you just listen to any kind of music, or are you a little bit selective about what you'd like to hear? Do you play just any kind of uh, video game, (laughs) for the kids who play video games, or are you selective? You get the idea the mind is involved in what you do. It should be. Do we think before we speak? Lord, help us. We should. See, we have the old mind, but we have this new mind in Christ, and this is where the warfare is happening according to Paul. And now this is getting into what is a a very difficult section as well, I think, because, well, I actually don't think it's difficult, but I think it's understood with difficulty Because it's kind of like verse 14 again, this idea of being sold under sin. He says, and bringing me into captivity, so this is the members warring against the law of my mind, bringing me into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. And he uses for the word captive, the word that means to lead one captive or to bring one into captivity. So you can see how you might, or people have a a question about this verse, like, Is he talking about a saved person or not? How can a regenerate person be brought into captivity again? Didn't he just say in Romans 6 that we're set free from sin and what he means is free from the power of sin? If so, then are we now slaves to sin again? The question that I asked myself, the answer to that, by the way, is no, (laughs) we're not. The question I asked myself as I looked at this was this, though. Why is Paul feeling so overwhelmed, overpowered, Surrounded, outnumbered. Why this feeling that is building to a sense of desperate pleading for deliverance? We understand a couple of things. One, we understand that his flesh, which is wretched, it only sins, it practices evil, it clings to him. That's what he means by it's sold under sin. He's sold under sin. No wonder he feels captive to sin. He's bound to this body of flesh that he cannot get rid of. He can't shake it loose ultimately. So there's a sense of captivity there. He wants to obey God's law perfectly, but he can't, despite his best efforts. And despite the Holy Spirit being in his life, the power source that gives him the ability to obey. But he can't do it 100%. So I think that's the first thing. His flesh clings to him and he hates it, so he's overwhelmed by it. And increasingly so as he grows in the faith. But secondly, this, when we consider the emphasis that Paul places on sin in his members, the the variety of members that we just talked about, as he looks within himself, I think he feels overwhelmed by his sin because this warfare is not just being fought on one front, but on many fronts simultaneously. It's not just his speech that he has to worry about, right? Right? He has to think about his thought life, his emotions, his desires. He has to think about what he looks at, what he listens to, how he speaks, the tone that he uses when he speaks, the body language that he communicates to others, what he does with his hands, where he goes with his feet. Do you see the problem? He sees sin replete in himself, in every part of who he is, and it all connects back to his mind and he feels overwhelmed. I'm fighting a battle constantly in every part of me. Who's going to deliver me from that? See, this is Paul's sense of I'm surrounded by enemies, and they're all in my members, all connected to me. <laughs> that is, I think, exactly what David was expressing in Psalm 142 when we were reading that this morning for our corporate reading. Now, David in his context, is being hunted by Saul's men. You know this story. And he is actually hiding out in a cave when he writes Psalm 142. I cry out to the Lord with my voice. With my voice to the Lord, I make my supplication. I pour out my complaint before him. I declare before him my trouble. When my spirit was overwhelmed within me, then you knew my path. In the way in which I walk, they have secretly set a snare for me. Look on my right hand and see, for there is no one who acknowledges me. Refuge has failed me. He's taken refuge in a cave, but it's not good enough. He's still surrounded by enemies. No one cares for my soul. Verse 5, I cried out to you, O Lord. I said, you are my refuge, my portion in the land of the living. Attend to my cry, for I am brought very low. Deliver me from my persecutors, for they are stronger than I. Now listen to this, verse 7, bring my soul out of prison. There's a statement of captivity. Bring my soul out of prison, that I may praise your name The righteous shall surround me, for you shall deal bountifully with me. He ends on a high note, trusting in the Lord, knowing that he will bring deliverance. But this interesting phrase, bring my soul out of prison. Was David a redeemed man when he wrote this? Yes, no doubt. This is the man who is after God's own heart. He loved the Lord. He delighted in God's law. He is saved, and yet... He feels like he's imprisoned. Why? Because he's surrounded by his enemies. They're hunting him. They're laying secret snares for him to catch him, to destroy him. Those are outward physical enemies in David's particular context. But brothers and sisters, this, I believe, is exactly the sentiment that Paul is describing in Romans 7 with regard to his internal enemies, the flesh. We have three enemies in categories, don't we, in the Scripture? We have the world, the flesh, and the devil. We have an inner enemy that is the greatest enemy of all, the flesh, because it expresses itself so fully in all of our members, we can't get away from it, and we're just becoming more and more aware of it as we grow. Paul said to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, verse 12, Yes, and all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. That is not only to be understood with regard to external persecution, physical persecution. It includes that. God's people will all suffer persecution. That means pressures. And those pressures come from the world, the flesh, and the devil. Paul in Romans 7 is describing a great pressure that he, as the mature apostle, experiences in the flesh the war within himself, and that is the war within you and me. We are surrounded by enemies, but the enemies are within, and it, it overwhelms us. We feel outnumbered, overpowered, and the truth is we can't deal with it in the flesh. We have no resource in ourselves to deal with that problem. If we try, we will be crushed. But thank God, the Lord doesn't leave his people alone. He is an ever present help in time of need. David recognized it and he calls on the Lord. He says, You are my true refuge, not this cave. You alone cause me to dwell in safety. So we're still not to the climax here in Romans 7 which is wretched man that I am, who will deliver me. I'm so looking forward to going there with you next time, Lord willing. But just in closing, let me just give you a couple of encouragements as I said I would. The first is on this point of the nearness of evil. Uh, Evil, yes, it is an ever-present reality in us. But here's the encouragement. For the children of God, that evil does not prevail against us. Ultimately, it will not prevail against us. The Lord is our strength in that situation where it's us and evil side by side. And this is a model that I'm seeing in in the Scripture as well in many places. And just to give you a couple of quick examples, in Zechariah chapter 3, we have Joshua, the high priest. Zechariah has a vision of Joshua, the high priest, standing before the Lord, the angel of the Lord, and he is in, Joshua, the high priest, is in dirty clothes. Immediately to his right is Satan, who stands there accusing Joshua. So here we have a picture of evil present with me. But the Lord is there. In fact, the Lord is allowing Satan to be there, isn't he? And the only reason Satan's accusations don't destroy Joshua is because the Lord clothes Joshua in clean clothes. He takes off the dirty garments and he gives him clean garments. A picture of our justification. Wonderful. It's this truth. Evil is always near, but the Lord is there with us. Think about Job. Who was it who allowed the devil to come near to Job, evil himself, the devil, to come near to Job and to attack him in every way except to take his life? Who allowed that? It was the Lord God in order that he might demonstrate his grace in Job's life. Or what about the Lord Jesus when he was led into the wilderness Who was it who led him into the wilderness, into the presence of evil? It was the Spirit of God who anointed him. God led him into the presence of evil to be tempted by the devil, but it was the Lord who prevailed by his own word. Amen? That's right. So in all of these cases, the Lord allows, in his infinite wisdom, evil to dwell with us in order that he would show his glory through that situation. So that he would overpower and override the evil with his good and make his name great. He doesn't take us away from evil altogether. This is so important to understand. He doesn't take us away from trials and hardship altogether. No, no. It's actually in the crucible that he sends us in order that he might demonstrate his power in that crucible. I'm the one who holds you up so that you are not utterly cast down. I'm the one who defends you so that you're not destroyed. I'm the one who prevents you from being burned up and disintegrated. The Lord always prevails. So evil is a present reality, but praise God, he will not allow us to be consumed. The second is, in terms of encouragement, is this delight of the new man. We delight Fundamentally, in God, because He's given us a new heart, praise Him for it. We didn't have this before. If you love the Lord this morning, if you enjoy His Word, if you spend time with Him and you know Him as Lord and Savior and friend, and you walk with Him and you talk with Him throughout the day, praise Him. He's given you that new mind and heart and affection for Him. That is a wonderful evidence that you belong to Him. It's not so with the wicked, they do not love the law of God, they make a pretense of loving God, but in fact, in their hearts, they hate God. And thirdly, the strength of the enemy is great, no doubt. The world, the flesh, and the devil, they wage an intense warfare against us, but mark this, the most intense battle takes place in our flesh within ourselves. It's within us. And it takes place not on one front, but on multiple fronts. And it takes place simultaneously, it's relentless. It's constant. It's a battle for the mind, always. And as we grow in grace, brothers and sisters, I wish it weren't so in one sense, but in another, it's wonderful. The more we see our sin, the more terrible we feel about it. We feel worse as we grow in grace. But that itself is an evidence that we're growing in grace. We see our sin more for what it is. We see the exceedingly sinfulness of sin. and We hate it. And as long as we look to ourselves in that condition and keep our eyes on that war within, we will be overwhelmed, outnumbered, overpowered. We will feel like the hymn writer said in Christ the Sure and Steady Anchor, while the tempest rages on, when temptation claims the battle, and it seems the night has won. It seems so. That's because we've got our eyes on ourselves. Deeper still then goes the anchor. Though I justly stand accused, I will hold fast to the anchor. It shall never be removed. Who's the anchor? Christ himself. The answer is looking to Christ, our anchor, so we live. Live now in the Spirit. Not fulfilling the desires of the flesh and the mind anymore seeking His will and His glory above all things. So may our prayer this morning, loved ones, be this. Psalm 119, 37. Turn away my eyes from looking at worthless things, evil, and revive me in your way. He is strengthening our inner man by His Spirit as we set our minds on Him. The new man is growing the old is fading away. We are gaining mastery. The Lord is gaining mastery over us as we grow in our sanctification. That's really what this is about. I mean, think about it. If your new man is pure, holy, undefiled, not able to sin, what's, what's the battle? It's the flesh We are gaining mastery by the Spirit of God in controlling the flesh, giving life to our mortal bodies so that they obey God. We are obeying Him in our minds. We are being brought to obey Him in our bodies as well in every part. That's salvation. May it be true for all of us. Let us pray. Father, We confess that you are mighty. You do all things well. Your word is powerful, quick, sharper than a two-edged sword. Lord, you alone know how to divide in the innermost man, bone from marrow, within the joints. Lord, your word seeks us out and exposes us for who we are. And we praise you, Lord, that your word and your grace is toward us a great grace, a superabounding grace, that we should not be consumed by you, that your wrath is no longer over us, waiting to destroy us in your long suffering, as it is with all the unbelieving. But, Father, you have turned your face toward us. We are accepted fully in your Son, who is your beloved. He is the accepted one, and we in him. Father, help us to live for you. Help us to set aside those besetting sins in our lives that, Lord, perhaps are in the recesses of our hearts and that come up when we are alone and no one knows but you. Lord, help us. We cry out to you, deliver us. And Lord, we know that you will. You are doing this with your people. You have in the past faithfully with all your people a a huge cloud of witnesses who've run the race successfully because of your spirit in them. Thank you that you're doing the same with us. We praise you in Jesus' name, amen.